0: Good evening to you all, or at least it's good evening for me. Um, We're going to go to Marriage and Family Chapter 11 and uh, define uh, what is marriage, Uh, why is marriage nearly universal, how does one marry, Uh, restrictions on marriage, the universal incest taboo, really important issue, Uh, whom uh, should one marry, Uh, lots of societies have real stringent rules on uh, who one can marry, uh, and how many does one marry? Uh, you'll be surprised to know perhaps that if you look at the standard ethnographic sample 86 percent of all societies permit polygyny and polygyny as a marriage form as we'll find out pretty soon is where a man can have more than one wife and we'll talk about the nature of the family the nuclear and the extended family and why uh, extended families are uh, pretty common worldwide. Um, marriage merely means a socially approved sexual and economic union, usually between a man and a woman, and this is typically a, an enduring kind of relationship. Um, one important dimension of marriage is cohabitation, but uh, there are groups such as the Na in China and the Nayar in India uh, where um, cohabitation uh, is uh, is not expected; uh, it's exceptionally rare and so we have marriages uh, without um, uh, the husband and wife having a common um, uh, residence but these are are really rare and then there are kind of rare types of marriages especially as the text pointed out same-sex unions uh, that occur in a variety of societies especially uh, in uh, Native North America and to some extent uh, Native South America Why is marriage nearly universal? Uh, there's some ideas out there. Uh, I think perhaps a combination of them um, uh, is probably correct. One has to do with the gender division of labor. The idea here is that um, women are, are really good at certain kinds of activities, men at other activities, kinds of activities, uh, and uh, together they can make a an efficient economic unit. Um, that's true, but I think uh, prolonged infant dependency is probably uh, the most important reason uh, in that um, humans uh, are slow to develop, Uh, they take a lot of nurturing and time, Uh, they're essentially uh, not able to become economically independent, by that I mean um, uh, be able to produce enough uh, food for their own uh, uses, uh, needs until they're about 18 years of age, it happens a little bit earlier uh, for, for, for girls Uh, than for boys and so I think this is probably uh, the most important uh, reason uh, for um, uh, why marriage occurs, why monogamy uh, is especially common and it's in tune with lots of other research on different animals from an evolutionary perspective. Uh, Sexual competition, that could be an issue too. It's a way for um, um, uh, people to maintain uh, the, the 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 unity of their their own union and prevent others from uh, competing, uh, but uh, that may be one dimension of marriage. The the uh, assumption is that there's some kind of fidelity, uh, but again I think uh, prolonged infant dependency. Uh, and um, um, there's some mention of other uh, mammals and birds and research that the embers have done on postpartum requirements, and that again feeds into the issue of uh, prolonged infant dependency postpartum means after birth uh, and the kinds of investments that's required and again uh, when you see this uh, in other you know, mammals and birds that it takes two to rear a, um, uh, uh, an infant and take care of it until they're able to uh, fend for themselves so this idea of prolonged infant dependency is probably the most important reason uh, for the evolution of marriage and accounts for its effect of, of a nearly uh, human universal. Um, How one marry? Some societies mark marriages by elaborate rites and celebrations while others do so in a much more informal way. Uh, and so in, in you know in our own society it's a big celebration, in other societies uh, it's pretty much uh, marked by simply a uh, um, uh, uh, A woman moving to a man's uh, residence, uh, taking up uh, living with him, and there's no big uh, celebration or or, ordeal. Um, And so that, you know, is kind of like, you know, the marking of the onset of marriage, a ceremony uh, is quite variable. Uh, But importantly, uh, there are a number of uh, economic aspects of marriage that um, you want to kind of uh, take a look at. and, and let's go through these uh, in that in about 75% of all societies, some kind of economic transaction um, is required. Uh, in a good number of societies, and you'll see the pie chart in just a minute, uh, bride price is required, and this is where a, a man essentially has to pay the bride's family for the right uh, to that woman, uh, the right to have uh, a complete and and faithful sexual access to her the use of her labor um, and, and so typically in you know, many herding societies is transfer of some kind of wealth like cattle, uh, goats, uh, other uh, things of value. In those societies that don't have much in the way of material wealth we have bride service and this is a situation where the husband has to work for the family of the bride for a number of years, one or two, uh, before he gains the the, uh, the right to take her to his own home and uh, have their marriage, so that's uh, another form of payment, uh, but in terms of a service. Uh, in some societies, um, uh, it, it's, uh, it's common that there's an exchange, that one family uh, has a son who uh, wants to get married, uh, they arrange a marriage with um, uh, a young woman in another family uh, with the expectation that um, that a woman in the other family has, has, a, uh, has a brother, who at some later time will, um, or at the same time, will marry uh, a woman from the other family. Uh, and so this is, you know, um, uh, exchange of females. And by the way, in a number of societies, you can have these things kind of working together. The group I worked with, uh, the Anamamo, uh, they both engage in, in bride service, sometimes called groom service, and the exchange of females. Sometimes they're just a, a token um, uh, exchange of gifts of little value. It's more symbolic between the families to. Um, you know, it's an economic uh, aspect of marriage. Then we have um, dowry, and a lot of people misunderstand dowry. Uh, Dowry, uh, think about the term endowed, Uh, so it means that you get something, Uh, and uh, in a dowry system, when a woman marries, she's endowed um, by her family with a set of resources, Uh, sometimes they're jewels, sometimes they're um, uh, pots and pans that are, you know, may seem trivial to us, but in societies that are highly are agricultural, these are really important uh, tools. Uh, and she brings that into the marriage. Uh, the husband typically um, brings land into the marriage. And so these, the, the dowry plus the husband's um, uh, house or, or land form what we call, and write this down, the matrimonial fund. That is essentially it is the uh, uh an economic startup package if you will um uh, that that combines resources from both families to ensure that uh, the um, new couple have a, a means to um, uh, start making a living uh, effectively don't worry about uh, indirect dowry it's uh it's not very common and um so it i have it there listed but you know it's nothing you really have to worry yourself about Um, Here's a, gives you kind of a a picture. So, um, you know, in 75% of all societies, we have these kinds of transactions. 25% of all societies, uh, we don't have these kind of uh, transactions. Now, where would we uh, put um, uh, uh, marriages in our own society? Well, traditionally, um, the um, uh, husband's family has to um, or excuse me, the wife's family has to bear the cost of um, of marriage. Uh, that is um, setting up the um, uh, reception, uh, feeding the guests, uh, running the space, um, paying for the DJ or or whatever. Uh, and but you know we would probably you know just call this a kind of maybe gift exchange. Uh, the um, and the wife's family then you know would may pay for the. Uh, or excuse me. The husband's family might pay for the rehearsal dinner or something of like that nature, but these typically are not, you know, um, dramatic costs. Although I'm not trying to say that a marriage in, in the United States is cheap. Some people really get uh, I- extravagant, but it's something we would call like a, a, an economic transaction. It's more or less kind of showing off to your friends and neighbors uh, and your your relatives about, you know. Uh, what kind of wealth you have and it's more like a display than anything uh, else. Um, restrictions on marriage. The, 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 the incest taboo is pretty much universal. Uh, that is um, there's a prevention of close inbreeding uh, through marriage and, and what it means is that typically you can't marry in anyone within your own family. Uh, in many societies, however, you can marry um, a first cousin or, or a second cousin, and many of you, for example, uh, of European descent, uh, going back three or four generations, may know of uh, cousin marriages, first or second cousins, uh, that uh, have happened in your family. This is very kind of common in in Europe, but the restrictions are against you know any kind of marriage within the nuclear family or between grandparents, grandchildren, uh, aunts, um, and um, nephews, uncles, and nieces. And so this is pretty much um, uh, a universal kind of pattern that we find, uh, although the limits vary, but you know, close inbreeding is essentially prevented. Uh, There are a number of um, theories about the universal incest taboo. And uh, the two that I think are most important, are the childhood familiarity theory, Uh, this was devised by um, uh, Edward Westermark Westermark, uh, at the turn of the 1900s, he was a Finnish uh, cross-cultural researcher, along with uh, the inbreeding theory. So these are are the two key kind of explanations and actually they're not in competition, Uh, but before I get into talking about those two, um, Freud's psych- uh theory—I don't even know why it's in the text—is uh, essentially what's the word I want to use—bogus—has uh, no um, um, empirical um, demonstration a- at all. Uh, but let's focus on the uh, what we call the proximate causes, the childhood familiarity theory, and the inbreeding theory, which is more of a functional uh, ultimate explanation. And the childhood familiarity theory is the idea that uh, if you grow up uh, with uh, another individual in an intimate day-to-day uh, interaction at the time of sexual um, maturity, even though you may may play doctor uh, earlier on, you'll have no interest in having sex with that individual. And so, basically, we're talking about our our, our siblings. We grew up with them. We have day-to-day uh, interactions, uh, and you know the very idea of even having sex with a sibling. Uh, strikes people as morally uh, disgusting, uh, a horrible thing to even uh, kind of try to uh, try to imagine. And so we have this kind of natural aversion to having any kind of sexual interest in someone that we grew up with. Uh, and so this is, provides a kind of psychological mechanism uh, that um, accounts for part of the theory. The other part of the theory has to do with Uh, inbreeding depression write that down inbreeding depression and what that means is that people who for example um, are are siblings uh, they they they, they have sex they have offspring and typically those offspring have very serious problems if they survive uh, past the first couple years of age and this is documented in a wide variety of animals it's well documented uh, in, in, in humans uh, the, the first kind of like clear demonstration was an interesting article by James um, uh, Neal and William Shull called The Children of Incest. And through examination of a series of, of case histories they show that uh, the offspring from inbred, uh, you know, sister-brother kinds of, 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 of um, uh, incestuous uh, sex uh, you know, just uh, pretty much uh, had a very low probability of survival. If they did survive, uh, then uh, they were mentally deficient or had uh, other sorts of kind of crippling uh, characteristics. So uh, the, the, the childhood familiarity theory uh, essentially provides us with a psychological mechanism that uh, makes us uh, not to even want to go there, uh, in, in, in a sense. And the inbreeding theory talks about the adaptiveness of not uh, engaging in in inbreeding. Um, So whom should one marry? Well we have a lot of societies arrange marriages Uh, in uh, some societies uh, you have to marry outside a particular group uh, that is your nuclear family uh, for example Uh, but within uh, um, a certain social circle could be religious, could be within your own culture, uh, could be within your own Uh, ethnicity and so these notions of exogamy and endogamy essentially uh, define the um, world of of appropriate marriages that you can have. Uh, In many societies I mentioned uh, cousin marriage is prescribed, uh, the idea that you can trust kin, uh, you can get along with them uh, and uh, we know that for example alliances are created and maintained through uh, intermarriage between uh, families. And so cousin marriages sometimes occurred, and then we have the interesting cases of the levirate and the sororate. And the levirate is actually um, from the Bible, um, first uh, Old Testament, practiced by the Levites. That's why we have it called the, the levirate, and it means that if a uh, um, uh, a man dies uh, who, who's married, then his brother is required to marry uh, his deceased brother's wife. And the sororit is much the same, just kind of the opposite. If a woman dies in marriage, then the woman's sister uh, is required to marry uh, the uh, the, uh, the former husband of her deceased sister. And the kind of argument here for the Libra and the sororite is it kind of maintains alliances that were established by marriage, if there's a death of one of the individuals, then the alliance is uh, potentially broken, and so uh, quick remarriage uh, allows the uh, alliance to uh, uh, persist. Um, How many does one marry? Well, uh, we can talk about plural marriages, and the term is polygamy. That is, a woman with more than uh, one husband at a time, or a man with more than one wife at a time. Uh, in the case of, you know, specifically polyandry uh, is the term where a woman is allowed to take more than one uh, husband at a time. That's really, really rare. Only about maybe um, two to three percent of all societies it. On the other hand, polygyny is permitted in eighty-six percent of all societies in the uh, ethnographic record. And so, if you think about it, uh, and you think perhaps polygyny is really odd. Uh, really what has to be explained is monogamy, now, why is monogamy uh, so, so rare. Now, that being said, uh, even though in 86% of all societies uh, polygyny is permitted, most of the men and women uh, in, 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 in these societies where polygyny uh, is uh, permitted uh, are married mono- monogamously. Uh, and also, if you look at those societies that practice um, monogamy, uh, you find that uh, they're very common in complexly organized state level societies. And we call this, you know, socially imposed uh, monogamy. Uh, but in general, uh, as a species uh, overall, uh, we are somewhat of a polygynous uh, species because it is so commonly uh, cur- allowed and typically uh, males that have high status especially wealth are the ones who are able to marry uh, polygynously um, so as I mentioned polygyny is practice in which men are allowed to be married to more than one woman at the same time and one theory is that societies that have a long postpartum sex taboo allow this practice uh, you know uh, there's like really Uh, weak, weak support for this uh, theory that they they champion uh, in the uh, textbook, Uh, it has to do with the fact largely that um, certain men in in, in societies are exceptionally wealthy and uh, oftentimes uh, women are better off being the second wife of a very rich man than the first wife of a very poor man, and so um, that's one explanation that it has to do with wealth differentials or status differentials um, um, where where polygyny is is practiced, uh, sororal polygyny, um, our polygyny comes in two forms. Sororal, that is, uh, the, the the preference is to marry women who are sisters, and non-sororal polygyny is uh, the rule that you can marry multiple wives, but none of them should be uh, sisters. So that's non-sororal uh, polygyny. The sororal part, you know, talking about like as in sorority uh, or or sisters is what that uh, stands for. Uh, polyandry is a practice whereby one woman is allowed to be married to more than one man. I mentioned this before, there's also two forms, fraternal, that is uh, brothers marry a single woman, so it's kind of like sororal uh, 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 polygyny, if you will, and then non-fraternal uh, polyandry, uh, where a, a woman marries men who are um, uh, not related, not uh, not brothers uh, to uh, to one another. Again, uh, polyandry is uh, relatively uncommon, uh, although it's much more common than um, uh, people have been led to believe, uh, one of my former graduate students and I published a paper in Human Nature about the unexpected um, uh, commonness of polyandry. You can go to my uh, webpage and download a copy of that paper if you want to. Uh, readable, we found out that it was much, much more common than previously suspected and typically occurs uh, in societies that are hunter-gatherers or are simple uh, agricultural societies or horticultural societies. Uh, To the family, now it's defined as a social and economic unit consisting minimally of one or more parents and their children. Um, Sometimes families are formed uh, by adoption. Uh, that's one way uh, if, if a couple uh, have, has lost a children uh, or uh, is unable to reproduce. And typically, um, you know, worldwide, uh, most adoptions are of close kin. Uh, and so they may be essentially uh, a couple uh, adopting a nephew or a niece, uh, one that perhaps has lost their, their parents. Uh, Or sometimes uh, they haven't lost their parents and they just essentially need children in the family to kind of help with economic affairs. And then we're going to talk about extended family households which are more common than nuclear family households and uh, there we have multi-generational sorts of households and there's some possible reasons for extended family households. Um, And again, adoptions, as I mentioned, most adoptions occur between kin and maybe due to lack of kin in the recipient family, and that is offspring, Uh, there may be consequences of high mortality rates through disease, so a family could be losing children and so a related family might give um, the equivalent of their nephews and nieces to the other family uh, to kind of make up for this loss, Uh, and so it's kind of like a way to kind of bulk up the family uh, that has uh, lost members or largely children uh, as a consequence of um, natural factors. Um, So what's an extended family? Uh, It's the most common form of family uh, and uh, it's a prevailing form of family consisting of a married couple and one or more married children all living in the same household. Uh, So for example, uh, husband and wife get married, they have kids, Uh, the oldest uh, son typically um, will uh, marry and then bring his bride into the family and so we have what's called a a patrilineally or patrilaterally extended uh, family household, there are matrilaterally extended family households but uh, patrilaterally extended uh, households are much more uh, common and uh, possible reasons for extended family households. Uh, most societies commonly have extended family households, as noted, and they are mostly found in societies that are with, with sedentary agricultural economies. And so these are uh, not modern agricultural societies, but uh, simple, uh, but, but fairly intensive agricultural societies. And uh, a lot of the reasons for this has to do with um, the fact that land may be in short supply, uh, but additional uh, labor can make that land uh, more uh, productive. And um, these possible reasons uh, too have to do with, um, so that would be the first reason, uh, kind of like uh, uh, the ability to use additional labor to make um, farming more efficient. Uh, Also, if you keep a family, the, the property within an extended family, then it prevents its continual subdivision into smaller and smaller parcels through time. You know, For example, if you have 100 acres uh, and you have uh, two sons and they inherit, uh, then they have 50 acres and they inherit their sons, and it goes down to 12 and a half, et cetera, et cetera, it gets smaller, smaller, smaller uh, in size. So uh, extended families kind of prevent that process uh, from going on. And also um, is found where, you know, where either parent must be away from uh, the household to work. So, for example, uh, if a, uh, a woman has to be away for a long period of time, uh, she has her mother, mother-in-law, or perhaps a sister who can take over duties, care for her children, things of that nature. Same thing apply for the um, a husband and the family if he had to be away uh, herding cattle for example uh, over a long distance and so uh, these extended family units are essentially economic cooperative units that uh, it's it's better to be uh, essentially well organized and large uh, so people can more efficiently uh, work together. Um, Some highlights mentioned in the textbook, Uh, one parent um, uh, families are becoming much, much more common uh probably as a consequence of, of wealth in a commercial uh, context in that uh, in the case here we're talking about larger amount of women um, they no longer need the economic resources of a man to uh, in order to have a family uh, and so they're able to essentially go it alone uh, and we're finding that you know we're talking about one-parent families. We're typically talking about, and here we're talking about 85 to 95% of one-parent families are headed uh, by, by by women. We call these matrifocal. That's M-A-T-R-I-F-O-C-A-L, matrifocal families. Uh, and so that one highlight talks about that in your text. And family and social security in Japan uh, talks about the decline of the extended family. And the extended family. It was kind of like to some extent a social security network that is the older couple uh, became incapacitated couldn't work uh, they begin to you know care for their grandchildren uh, and uh, their their children would support them economically uh, the extended family uh, began to disappear in Japan as a consequence of agriculture being uh, not as important and so the state steps in to essentially um Recreate that form of family social security that was inherent in uh, the the extended uh, family, and and so uh, take a look at that. Highlights very interesting to see how uh, you know this need for uh, caring for the elderly uh, was done uh, in an extended family context. and Now the state has stepped in uh, because the extended family no longer exists, and and helps out. Um, here are some key terms then uh, and concepts, uh, theories of marriage, and here you know the issue of uh, parental investment in offspring and needing uh, two um, uh, adults to to uh, uh, take care of of children who have a long period of immaturity. Uh, we talked about extended and nuclear families. Uh, you know, nuclear families are pretty much isolated families, just husband, wife, and their children, and they're typically found in areas where you know you have to have a lot of mobility. Uh, and uh, you essentially move to where the jobs are, which moves you away from your own families and uh, prevents the extended families uh, from forming. And extended families uh, typically are are uh, cooperative uh, entities that are involved in uh, relatively intensive agriculture. The incest taboo, you know, it focuses on uh, childhood familiarity theory and uh, the prevention of uh, inbreeding uh, as as the two. Uh, linked uh, causes of or uh, of the incest taboo economic transitions uh, transaction marriage we talked about bride price groom uh, service dowry etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, <clears throat> dowry typically uh, by the way occurs in those societies that are intensively uh, agriculture uh, and uh, again the dowry is essentially uh, where a woman has resources that she brings into a marriage combines with the husband's uh, re, uh, resources so they can have a, a matrimonial fund to start a marriage, uh, and then know the difference between monogamy, polygyny, and polyandry, uh, and then marriage arrangements. Uh, we have, you know, I talked about exogamy, endogamy, cousin marriage, the leveret and the sorority, and the important thing to note here is that uh, parents have, a, um, historically, have had a great deal to say about who one marries in our own society um, in, in recent historic times uh, you know we're kind of free to choose although you know um, uh, bringing home uh, a boyfriend or a girlfriend uh, that you're serious about you know they'll get scrutinized by their parents and the parents will express their opinions of the, the potential uh, marital um, relationship that could uh, could, uh, could develop but historically you know uh, parents have been the ones who essentially arranged marriages, and the idea here is that you know uh, young people are really too foolish; uh, they don't know what um, uh, marriage really entails. Um, and, and another issue too is is in our own society, uh, romantic love is supposed to be the kind of be all and end all of marriage, and that people marry uh, because they uh, fall in love with interesting. Uh, and some cross-cultural research only kind of briefly mentioned uh, in, in the text is that while romantic love is a cross-cultural universal it is not a cross-cultural foundation for marriage. Uh, marriage typically occurs for political, social, and economic uh, reasons and historically they've been arranged by parents. Today that's quite different. Uh, uh, romantic feelings are you know, the center of our marital uh, decisions but that's kind of like a uh, relatively rare recent uh, historical development. So uh, that's it for marriage and uh, family. <clears throat>